Welcome to The New Exchange, a podcast series that explores how everyone has a story to tell. My name is Ken Grandpierre, and it's not possible for me to sugarcoat this. I am deeply excited for you to hear today's episode. My guest is photographer, writer, CEO, presenter, and cook, Giles Dooley. For over a decade, Giles has dedicated his life to photographing people within conflict zones, with an emphasis on people who deal with the realities of warfare. In 2011, he suffered a grave injury by an IED, causing the loss of both of his legs and left arm. That experience would be a bookend for some, but for Giles, it didn't stop him from continuing his passion of photography. Rather, it recontextualized it. The focus of his work has been towards telling the stories of refugees, specifically the long-term ramifications of people who have been displaced by conflicts, as well as an additional emphasis on people with disabilities who often don't get the coverage in the media. This has caused him to travel extensively across Afghanistan, South Sudan, Lebanon, Ukraine, amongst others. In several ways, Giles is a hero of mine. I first came across his work due to his 2016 collaboration with the band Massive Attack. What happened was that the band worked with Giles to showcase his photographs at their concerts against these massive LED screens in theaters and festival stages all over the world. From there, I found a TED Talk that Giles gave some years ago in Exeter. That TED Talk is called The Power of a Story, and this will arguably be the most millennial thing I've ever said on this podcast, but that TED Talk truly changed my life. It helped me to reconfigure how I view storytelling, reminding me of how everyone on Earth has a unique story that has innate value to the world. Throughout the years, Giles' work has appeared in The Guardian, GQ, the BBC, the Pulitzer Center, and the list is endless. But an additional passion of Giles is cooking, which has led to his vice show, One-Armed Chef. It's a show that features Giles traveling the world, cooking with friends and strangers, and in effect, doing what he does best, connecting with people to tell their stories. Honestly, talk about the most interesting human I've ever had on this podcast. This talk was such a joy to make, and it's full of gems and insights that I know I'll be taking with me for the rest of my life. Before we start, be sure to look into the Legacy of War Foundation, a nonprofit that Giles started, which aims to utilize storytelling in a proactive way to foster change. Also remember to subscribe on the app that you're listening to this on, and to also rate and leave a review over at Apple Podcasts. Those ratings help us independent creatives in a big way, so if you like what you hear, do let me know about it. This is The New Exchange with Giles Dooley. Enjoy. So, hand on heart, I have to start by saying I massively appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. I've been looking forward to this for quite a, t- a while now, really. No problems. I'm, I'm glad we were able to uh, find a time. Um, I'm actually in Ukraine right now. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of nice. I've, I've got a day, a quiet day back at my hotel. So it's, it's nice just to have a bit of a time to uh, reflect on things and, and, yeah, good time to chat. Yeah, well, we're absolutely going to be doing loads of that. And, you know, you mentioned that to me as well when we were setting up. and. I have to be honest, like, I, ha- I have so many things I want to ask you about, but when you brought that up, and as you did just now, that's arguably, that's the first way we could start. Like, how has it been for you over there? Um, well, I mean, Ukraine is a country I've been coming to. One of the first ever projects I did was in Ukraine in 2005, which I did a, a story on, on, on children who were homeless. And then in 2015, I came with the fighting in Donbass. And I've been kind of telling that story. And last year, I was actually here making 
a show about food, a TV show about food. So, you know, I have a really strong connection with Ukraine, Ukrainian people. When the war started, or shall we say when the war expanded into what it is, because really the war has been going on for many years in Donbass. I'll be honest, I didn't think I would be that involved. You know, as a photographer, I try and stay away from the main stories that are going on. I remember a friend of mine who works for the Ukrainian uh, Ministry of, of of kind of journalism and registering so that there were at that point two and a half thousand journalists registered in Ukraine within about the first week of the war. You know, so for me, I'm like, well, there's no point going there. And I kind of have a saying sometimes that if, if I go somewhere, there's another photographer, I'm probably in the wrong place. You know, somebody's already doing that story. And, you know, you had some of the best photographers in the world here, documenting filmmakers. So for that reason, I kind of thought I'm going to focus on what I normally do, which is the lesser reported stories, because while there was two and a half thousand journalists here in Ukraine, there was probably, I think, three in Central African Republic, you know, a few in, in Democratic Republic of Congo, you know, so you kind of look and think, well, why is, you know, everybody into one spot? Plus, of course, there's some amazing Ukrainian journalists working here. So that's a very long winded answer, but it, it, it's, it's kind of setting up a little bit about how I try and work, which is to keep away from the, the headline stuff, because it seems that everybody goes to one story. That being said, Knowing Ukraine well and having a lot of Ukrainian friends, what I saw with the coverage was was quite one dimensional. You know, it was very much about the fighting, about the, the the horrific things that were happening on the front line. But as somebody living with a disability myself, you know, one of the things that really struck home immediately was I was seeing everybody from marginalized communities being portrayed as victims. So, you know, people with disabilities, it was just stories about them being stuck at the border in wheelchairs. You know, women tend to be portrayed as either victims or as passive supporters. Um, you know, people from all sorts of marginalized communities, LGBTQ plus community um, and people of color were always portrayed as victims. And yet that wasn't my experience in Ukraine. And so what I first came here to do was some stories of women who were leading um, various activist groups and NGOs. Civil society is very strong in Ukraine. I know incredibly powerful women here. I was like, well, why am I not seeing these stories? So, you know, one, one, um, Oliana is, is an amazing woman. She is the world wheelchair karate champion. Um, and she actually led a convoy out of Butcher under Russian control. And she was the one that led the convoy in her adapted car through the Russian checkpoints. So I did a story on her. I, there's a story about a, a group called Insight, which is uh, led by this game, this amazing woman, Elena Shevchenko, who is a gain civil rights campaigner. You know, some really powerful, powerful people. And I wanted to kind of come and do those stories. That's why I'm here in Ukraine, is to try and show maybe a nuanced or different um, side to what, what's happening here in the conflict. It's about maybe some of those marginalized communities telling their stories and also trying to explain to people that war is not this you know, one-dimensional thing. It's not just what's happening on the front line. Um, you know, life goes on, the, the restaurants are open, people go out and, and, and celebrate life often in those places as well. So anyway, I'm rambling. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what a podcast is for. So don't ever <laughs> feel bad about rambling. But like, I have to say, I, so much of that answer conveys exactly why I want to talk to you because, and respectfully, I really appreciate you sharing all that because it's like you said at the top there, the way the, con the country and the conflict is being conveyed is so one-dimensional. And it's very, quite frankly, in my opinion, I, f I tend to find it quite alarming how swiftly 
we as people will re reduce other human beings to just news headlines. But something I very much value about your work is that I feel that element of showing the multitudes and like the complexities of humanity is something that is very paramount for you, regardless of what the context is. You know, a really interesting uh, conversation I had with my friend Evgen Klopchenko, who's a chef in Ukraine. And he actually said to me, he goes, you know, I feel ashamed. He goes, because when I think of Afghanistan, when I think of Syria, he goes, I don't know anything about their food. I don't know anything about their culture. All I see in my mind is war. Yes. All I see is war. That's all I think of. And he goes, I don't want Ukraine to be portrayed in the same way. And I think that goes for so many countries. I mean, most historically and most um, extremely, I guess, is, is, you know, much of Africa is portrayed as one thing through the eyes of the media. So when people, for example, talk about DR Congo, you know, people don't know about the food culture, don't know about the music, don't know about the fantastic energy of, of Kinshasa. They just think of, you know, horrors of war, of, of, of gangs, of all the violence, etc. And, you know, this, this kind of myopic view of the world is something that really has to change. And, you know, I think it's changing slowly, but it's, it's still, you know, Ukraine, again, just shows that really when it comes down to it, people just show things in this very one-dimensional way. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's interesting because obviously there's something, I don't know if it's innate in humanity that this is like perpetuated, but it's a strange thing to see the continuation of because having that very myopic view of like cultures in the world, it doesn't serve anybody really. No, it doesn't serve. It, it, it does an injustice first and foremost to the people in those countries, you know, because, you know, I mean, going back to, to DR Congo, which is a, a country I spent a lot of time in, it's such a vibrant place. It's, you know, for me, one of the most energizing, culturally exciting, creative countries in the world. But most people, as soon as you say DR Congo, they're like, oh my God, you go there? Like, well, you know, it's not, it's not like that, but that's how it's portrayed. Or even, you know, Beirut in Lebanon. Again, people, you know, when they talk about it, they talk about war, they talk about violence. Again, hugely vibrant city. So we're doing ourselves, you know, an injustice in the sense of we're missing out on a lot. You know, we're missing out on all these amazing cultural uh, stories and, and creativity that's coming out of countries because we, we show things through this, this simple lens. And I don't know if it comes back to a, you know, speaking as a, as a white man coming from the UK, whether that comes back from a, a sort of cultural um, arrogance of, you know, we are, we are the world and therefore everything else we're just going to show as, as less than us. I don't know where it comes from, but it's something that has to change, is not changing fast enough. And yeah, it, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah, well, I could say that as an American, like, um, if the UK was like the architects of that, I feel like we mastered it here in the States. So <laughs> I think we kind of ran with the baton on that. Well, that's what I mean. And I think, we, you know, we've got to be you know, clear. It's not just like we're talking about photography, but it's in all sorts of things. I mean, you look at the, the you know, Hollywood movies. I mean, Hollywood movies, if you're going to have a myopic lens of anyone who is an American, you know, it's like every British person is like the evil master, the <laughs> criminal. Oh my God. Like, this is diverging a bit, but I was recently on a trip um, to France and like the airplane movie that I decided to watch was um, The Kingsman, the most recent one. Um, and oh my God, that was really bad, specifically because of this, because I mean, the actors were trying their best, but they kind of reduced all the actors into caricatures of like different cultures. And like, like uh, I think Ray Fiennes played uh, Rasputin and like, I felt like if I was Russian, I would have felt <laughs> deeply offended by how he did it. <laughs> well, and, and again, as somebody with, with a sort of uh, physical uh, disability, I mean, 
anybody missing a limb or with a scar on their face, you know that's the <laughs> exactly. bad guy. <laughs> you know, as soon as you see that character in a James Bond film, I mean, every James Bond villain, villain almost always has some kind of Even physical the most disability. You know, like, oh. <laughs> exactly. It, they're still doing that. You know? it's, it, <laughs> uh, well, do you know what's kind of crazy, guys? I, I first came across your work uh, due to music, funnily enough. So I'm glad we're kind of on this track. It was specifically the work you did with Massive Attack for their uh, 2016 tour dates. And um, the band showcased your photographs as part of their massive LED screens, which fit like beautifully within the context of their consistent uh, political message. I'd love to hear about how this came about and how it felt for your, for you to collect, like there's going to be an intro to this talking about, you know, your past and your present, but I wonder how did it feel for you to get to collaborate in music again in that way? You know, actually, there's a great story to this. I don't think I've ever told this, but um, when I was 19, 18, 19, I started studying photography in Bristol. Um, and I was just doing like learning the very basics. And I it was just before or about the time of the Blue Lines album by Massive Attack, which is kind of what went to global and turned them into superstars. And they still used to go and play pool down at the local uh, bar where I would go drinking. And so I met Rob and, and um, Grant and a couple of the guys from Massive Attack and told them I was a photographer. And Rob said, well, you should come and show us your work. And I said, well, I'm not ready yet. I've just started, you know, and I was a little bit intimidated by the whole thing. So it, it was actually a really, that was kind of my only contact with them then. So it was oh. 20 years later. Um, 20 years later, we had a few mutual friends. We we'd kind of had a couple of discussions, but I was in Lesbos documenting the refugee crisis and what was happening there. And I rang him up and I said, you know, we met 20 years ago. And I, you said, I should come and show you my work. I said, I'm ready for that collaboration now. Oh and he, he just laughed. <laughs> He's like, okay, well, let's chat. So it, it was, there was kind of this background to it. But the reason was kind of for me as a photographer, I went through a transition about 10 years ago where I realized that being a photographer wasn't enough. We're storytellers. And you know, it, the story is what we're carrying, somebody else's story, whether that be in words or in photographs or moving image. And so it's also our role to make sure we tell the story, make sure people hear it. And, you know, I would find I would do a story, hand it over to a newspaper or a magazine, it gets published, but I, I'd lost control of it. And I wanted to find new ways to get audiences to hear these stories. And I thought music was a great way to do it because, you know, too often if your work's published in a, in a newspaper or a magazine, People are already reading it, probably agree with you already. You know, they're turning over that paper going, yep, I told you so, I told you so. You know, how do you get people to engage with stories that are not engaged with them? Who are the people that have turned off the news, the people that don't read papers anymore? And music is so fantastic. You know, if you go to a big gig, the emotions inside you, you know, when you're all together, there's 20,000 people listening to their favorite song. You know, you find yourself crying, laughing. It's, it's an emotional roller coaster. And I thought, well, if we could bring some of these stories into that moment, how impactful that would be. And actually, you're right that Massive Attack has had a long visual history. It's very important for them, the visuals in their live shows. But they're very statistical. You know, it tends to be numbers, facts, words. You know, Rob um, Danaya, the lead singer, also does all the, the, the visuals, and he's very into that. And I said, well, why not bring in some emotion, some imagery as well, and we could work on that. And so it's, it's become a collaboration. We've done a few um, shows now. Um, one of the most amazing for me was they did a homecoming gig in Bristol. Um, and it was about, I think, I, I lose track of time, but, you know, it was kind of probably actually getting 25 years or something since they released the album. They hadn't played in Bristol for about 10 years. They were playing 
this kind of homecoming gig out in this big um, park that's in the middle of Bristol. And they were going to be showing, you know, my visuals in the middle of this. And it was literally 100 meters away from where I used to live when I was 19. And I remember sitting there at the side of the gig, watching it, thinking, you know, the 19-year-old me would never believe that finally this collaboration would happen and those images would be up on stage. And, you know, and I was live tweeting because there were photographs of Syrian refugees living in Lebanon. And I was taking photographs of them on stage and sending them by WhatsApp to those families who were still in the camp in, in Lebanon. And, you know, hearing the messages coming back going, oh, that's my boy. And, you know, it's just such beautiful that that connectivity of seeing 20,000 people emotionally reacting to these photographs and being able to show those families, you know, people are listening to you. People are, you know, hearing your stories. It was really very emotional moment for me. Oh my God. You know what I love the most about that, especially in essence of like that gig particularly. I'm, I'm a big fan of their music and I have been for many years now. And hearing you say that kind of rebounded into my head how one of the most like fascinating um, just elements about them, their existence is that they're arguably one of, if not the biggest non-commercial group in the world. Like they're so big and they get to do these big shows and they have this fan base, but they don't really interface with like the commercial world on any metric. When you consider your work being utilized in that fashion, there's something about that that just makes that feel so tasteful. Like I want a better word than tasteful, but that's the first one that kind of props up in a way. No, and I think that's important for me because it wasn't like, oh, we're cashing in on, on what's happening. We're going to use these images. It's their whole stance, their whole career has been, you know, political. I mean, they're, they're working at the moment to become one of the first bands that's um, carbon neutral. You know, they're, they're, they're experimenting. They're always trying new things, um, but they have a real integrity to everything that they've ever done. So, you know, I'm very precious about my stories and the people that I document. That's why, for example, my photographs don't go through any agency. You can't just buy my photographs and use them. Everything is precious because these are people's stories. And, and I feel like a kind of responsibility for those stories. So for me to work with somebody else is then going to be projecting them. It's important that there is that integrity. And what was great is we did it once for one tour. And then I, I, we sat down again. And I said, well, look, we, it's great. We've kind of got people to, to look at this. But what does that mean? You know, they've just seen an image. How do we get people to move? next step so we then created a free newspaper and we would hand out about twenty thousand newspapers after the gig and in the newspaper would be the stories of the people that they'd seen in the live show and ways they could support and active things that they could do and that was really important for me as well because we took it beyond just being oh look at this visuals but actually you know you, you've got people engaged when they leave a gig and they're sitting on a train here's a newspaper for them to read through and actually hear the story so that was great as well that's unbelievable. I didn't know that bit. That's very effective. I'm even thinking like someone might have that newspaper on their coffee table and look at it a year or two years after the fact and it would still impact them. Like that's really beautiful though. Yeah, and, and as I say, I think it's important as a, as, a, as a storyteller and also as an activist, you know, we have to kind of question ourselves all the time. And I say the first time, you know, I was like, oh, wow, these visuals are up on stage. How amazing is that? And I was like, well, what's it doing? I mean, is it just getting people emotional? But how do we take them to the next stage and say, okay, they've opened up to the stories, but here is actually some more background information and here's things you can actually do to create some kind of change. Yeah. What, what you brought up about that turning point uh, 10 years ago is another big element of why I wanted to talk to you. And it's actually very reflective of where I've been in my own personal and professional life. Um, right before the pandemic, like around like uh, the, fourth the fourth quarter of 2019, I found myself 
questioning uh where to go next in life and the element of intention i would say that word was a big paramount paramounts for me and then throughout the pandemic and the lockdowns i found myself really uh struggling to figure that out and thinking about photography in the way where exactly you were saying it could be in a form of service and something that i constantly refer to when i'm feeling lost or confused and i can't believe i'm about to say this because it's probably the, one of the most bourgeoisie things i've ever said is um your ted talk the one you did in exter it's one of my favorite things in the world because beyond your storytelling i was surprised by how much i connected to that desire to do more with life in terms of meaning and i think to highlight this can you share the <laughs> the hotel story from the charlotte street hotel for a moment because i think all people <laughs> would understand that a little yeah bit. well i mean the the end because i started as a, a a sort of fashion photographer a music photographer you know i mean it was great at 18 19 i'm on the road with all these kind of rock and roll bands from you know oasis to the black crows and, and living this kind of you know yeah rock and roll life i think you know there's, there's quite a few stories back from there of 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 I think I thought I was more of a band member than most of the bands did. I mean, I came back from a, a shoot once and I'd been on the road with a band called Reef for a week. And the editor went through all these pictures since the days of negative. So everything's like on a light box. And he goes, Giles, he goes, there's one picture in focus. He goes, and that's of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of like, well, it was, you know, it was a great adventure. But as the years went on and as I kind of, you know, matured a bit, I, I got increasingly cynical about celebrity culture. You know, it seemed that it was less about the integrity of artists. It was more about fame, money, um, and the way that women were portrayed in a lot of the magazines I worked for um, was, was also very questionable. You know, it, it sort of seems strange to me that if you photographed David Beckham, he'd be in an amazing suit. But if you met Kate Winslet, she'd have to be in her underwear, even if she just won an Oscar. You know, it was, it was something that, that I was questioning a lot of all this in my mind. And I'd been kind of increasingly unhappy because... You know, on paper, I had this amazing life. I'd be photographing. I remember going to photograph Lenny Kravitz's house in Miami, getting paid a lot of money to do it. And then sitting in my hotel room and quite frankly, being in tears because I was like, I'm not happy. And I don't understand because I have this great you know, life. If I'm not happy now, how am I going to get happy? You know, it, it doesn't matter. Another cover of a magazine or getting paid another $10,000 to do a shoot. It's not making me happy. And so it all came to a, a climax when I was in the Charlotte Street Hotel in, in London. It's this beautiful hotel in Soho. There was a, a shoot going on, a young actress. And in the room, in the bedroom, there was this argument going on between the agent, her agent, um, the editor of the magazine about whether she should have her top on and whether, you know, how this would be done. And she was in tears. And I was just sat in the other room kind of getting my lights together. And I just sort of looked through and, and just saw this scene in front of me. And, and it was like that eureka moment where I just went, this is not what I want to be involved with. This is not why I became a photographer. So the rock and roll story, is that I took all my cameras and, you know, these are big like Mamiya RZ and I threw them all out the window of the Charlotte Street Hotel and said, fuck it, that's it, I'm done and left. But anyone that knows me, I'm not that rock and roll. <laughs> I'm a little calmer. I had a little hissy fit and just kind of threw them on the bed. What I discovered <laughs> that day is that the Charlotte Street Hotel has the bounciest beds in London because it hit the bed, bounced out, <laughs> and out the window, smashed in the street. So, um yeah, it was, it was, but it was a symbolic end. I mean, I walked away from photography, um, got a job in a, in a, in a bar um, outside of London, was drinking myself into really, you know, a, a stupor. Um, I was 28 years old, but, but kind of was completely lost. And, and a story that doesn't get told that often is actually what happened is after two years of, of in this kind of drunken stupor, I got a job as a care worker. 
and I was like a live-in support worker for a young man with um, autism. Um, he needed 24-hour support. And I was doing just like one day a week, just helping out. And it ended up becoming a full-time job where I'd be living there for seven days at a time. You know, I did that for two years. And it was the toughest job I've ever done. But people would, would look at me and they go, but you were a fashion photographer. You were living this great life. And now you are you know, looking after someone. And they would look down on that. But I could actually say for the first time in my life, I was happy because I could see the direct and positive impact I had on someone else's life. And that really changed everything inside me. And, you know, you were talking about that, that search of, of, I guess, for meaning or for purpose. And, and I realized that, you know, getting paid $10,000, $20,000 to photograph a celebrity for a cover of a magazine left me feeling empty. But sitting there, spending 24 hours with a young man and helping him to live a full life gave me satisfaction and gave me a sense of, of, of well-being. And that was really the moment that I decided that that's how I needed to work with my photography was to do the same thing through storytelling that I was able to do. And, and so, you know, when people say to me, you know, you've given up so much to go and work in conflict zones and tell stories, I kind of say in some ways it's a selfish act. You know, it's a selfish act because it's what makes me feel fulfilled. It's what makes me feel, um, yeah, like I have a sense of purpose. So it was, it was through that care work for two years that I realized that, that my happiness was going to come by doing things that in some ways um, helped others. Yeah, I didn't know that the latter portion of that. And like, you know, that's such a, I mean, so much of like your life story within this particular sector has so many uh, variables that are like fascinating because it's interesting how there's these paths that could have ended and then they trapped above each other. Like, you could have worked at that bar for ages and no one would have thought anything of it. But, you know, when you think about, like, this just popped in my head to ask, but if you consider what you just said, yeah, like, working those tears as a carer, what was it that even made you want to go back to photography at all? Obviously, there was the idea of doing it differently, but it sounds like you were, like, pretty adamant about not even picking up a camera again. So it, it actually was... Um... So, so Nick, who I worked with, um, he, as I say, has, has uh, autism that makes life quite difficult for him. He's, he's semi-non-verbal, um, so, um, and he self-harms. And, and, you know, we, we're still very close. In fact, he was just texting me today. You know, we, he, he comes to all my exhibitions. So, you know, that, that's 15 years ago, but we still speak at most days. And um, we built this relationship, and, and, but he was having trouble. More, more importantly, his, his mother was having trouble getting a lot of the psychologists and doctors to really understand how serious his condition was. And so it was kind of sitting in a conversation one day, we were like, well, why don't we photograph his daily life? And then Nick could help edit the pictures and help me choose the photographs that he felt represented him. And we could use that and then show it to um, his support team. And that's what we did. And that was the moment that I realized actually photography could be such a powerful advocate that it could help people to tell their stories. I hate the phrase, um, you know, give voice to people. That's the most ridiculous phrase in the world. People have voices. But what photography can do is help those people to communicate their story if maybe but for whatever reason their voices have been ignored. And for Nick's case, because he was nonverbal, you know, the photographs were a way for him to say, this is my story. So that was the moment, I guess, the two things combined was I saw the power of storytelling to help tell somebody's story that wasn't mine. And... At the same time, I was finding that, that for me, 
you know, there, there was um, a fulfillment in life came from supporting somebody else. So those two things came together. And I thought, well, maybe I can do this on a, on a wider scale using my photography. I really appreciate you sharing that. That is beautiful. And it, it, it's incredible how it harkens to just the very, like, I think photography at its best is when it has so little to do with the photographer and everything you just said kind of correlates to that. Yeah, you know, I think the, the fashion and music photography was all about ego because it's all about the band's ego, the musicians, you know, my ego, everything about that is all about how clever we can be, how cool we can be, whatever. And increasingly trying to get to a point when the photographer is sort of absent from, from the story, I think is really important. I mean, one of the things sort of jumping a bit, but that I've, I've had to come to terms with is, is actually understanding what success is. You know, as a young photographer, success was getting a cover of a magazine. And when I moved into doing this documentary work, it was still the same thing of like, surely success is getting a big spread in the New York Times or, you know, getting something high visibility, winning world press photo. Those were the, the levels I thought success was at. I have personally, for me, learned that success comes in actually seeing change for the communities or the individuals I've documented. So, you know, I've just done a story here in, in Ukraine. Uh, about a month ago, two months ago, and I've come back here because we've used that story to do a fundraising campaign um, with, with Misha Collins, the actor in the States, and we do this, this fundraiser each year. And we've just raised uh, $200,000 in a week using those stories. Now, nobody in the photo world is going to see those images. Those images are not in a magazine. They're not in a newspaper. In some ways, I think at the beginning, I would kind of think, well, maybe I'm fading. Maybe I'm not a good photographer if you know, these pictures are not you know, being seen worldwide. Actually, for me personally, and everyone has their own journey, I'm not criticizing or, or comparing. I'm just saying for me personally, though, the satisfaction I get is that story has now meant we've raised the money that those families whose story we were telling, their lives changed. We've set up, we're setting up a, a shelter for women and a shelter for LGBT community here in, in Ukraine. And we just bought 50 um, high um, ability wheelchairs. You know, so that for me is success. But I've had to kind of deprogram what I thought success was as a photographer and at its core is what you just said which is trying to take the photographer out of it my ego out of it and actually look at it and say if somebody has shared their story with me if we've made those photographs together is there a way that these photographs can now actually go some way to changing that person's life yeah exactly and you know something that i think is so striking within all that is just like how this kind of hark like this reminds me of a recent conversation I was having with a friend in the context of social media, which is obviously the bane of every photographer's existence. But we had this really interesting moment where I was saying that, like, you know, I'll, I'll like expound because it might be a little too inside baseball for some people. But it's like, you know, the, the way the algorithms, the algorithms function is that people who interact with your work the most are the ones who will see it. And funnily enough, in the context of photography, that will, interestingly enough, at least in my experience, be other photographers. And I was saying to a friend of mine how I actually find that frustrating where I'm I'm noticing that it's other photographers who are seeing my work more than non-photographers. And interestingly enough, I actually prefer it if my work interfaces with more people who don't do photography because there's an essence within that that means something to me. I can't really articulate what it is, but there, there's I don't do it I don't share work just to like get a pat on the back from my peers, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's a real challenge. I mean, I started photography at 18 when I got given a camera 
I'm dyslexic. I'd always struggle at school. I've been held back a year, you know, told I was stupid. I got a camera and suddenly it was like I could speak. It, it, you know, it's literally that profound. It was suddenly, you know, I had all these ideas and I couldn't express them. But with a camera, I found people were interested in what I was saying. And, and so, yeah, you don't do that because you want to be successful or you want other photographers telling you, great, it's literally, that's, that's my way of speaking. But you get caught up in an industry, you, you know, all creatives um, want or need maybe, you know, sort of people saying your work's great because we're all pretty insecure about what we're doing. So you kind of need that. Um, and then, as I say, with the measurements of success, you know, are things like magazine covers, our awards. So it's hard to kind of step away from that. But that's what I'm trying to do with, for example, the Massive Attack gigs. You know, again, that's a lot of people that are not coming to a photography audience. Um, the fundraising things we do. It's like I have a project called Vent. Um, and Vent is a project that came out with a couple of years ago where there's a website where you can go on and you can download my photographs. And the idea is for new artists to create new pieces from those photographs. And on the website, I specifically say my photographs have got no value. Rip them up, pull them apart, destroy them, create something new. What has value is the story. And it's kind of almost like a punk aesthetic, you know, it's like mess with them, do whatever you want and create something new from it, but respect the story because that's the important part. And that's been so exciting. You know, at first I was very defensive because in one sense, I'm a perfectionist as a photographer. You know, it's like if, if stuff's in a magazine, I'm like, you can't crop it, you can't do this. Everything's like, you know, you get really uptight about it. This was a release from that where I basically said, take it, do what you want. You don't have to ask me. It's downloadable for free, you know, create your new piece and then just show it to me. And it's been so exciting and really interesting to see a kind of, you know, a, a circle. For example, there's an amazing um, set of photographs that the photographs originally were of uh, this group of women from South Sudan who had set up a, a hairdressing salon in a refugee camp in Uganda. And I'd made those photographs. And now they've been re-represented by a Brazilian artist living in a favela who has painted and created new artworks from those those pieces and in, in many ways that's gone full circle I love that you know again it's taking away the ego and now he's created something new my photograph was just one part in that transition and I think that's so exciting to see those kind of things as well so it's all part of what you're saying which is trying to to step away yeah and like have knowing your work can have a life outside of the moment and you know you know, within that, because I mentioned the, the TED Talk, and I'll definitely be linking it within the description of this. I, I hope that when people check it out, um, they notice how depression played a significant role in your life. And in some ways, even being a motivator, which is like, you know, quite interesting to like, you know, even point out. And I wonder, like, when I knew we were going to talk, this was probably the first question that came into my mind. But, you know, respectfully, as much as you'd like to share, like, did depression kind of rear its head for you throughout the pandemic at all? Or did it feel similar or like different in a way? I mean, for me, depression really hit me the most when I was 28, 29. And you know, that was after we spoke about when I gave up sort of photography. Um, the depression, I don't think I'd realized how much it had been kind of creeping up on me and how much of what I was feeling was, was depression. But photography was kind of my only outlet. I think as well, it's interesting, photographers, photographers, it's like our identity, right? I mean, how many times do you go to an event or a party and I meet people, I say, hi, I'm Giles, I'm a photographer. It's almost like the two things are like, you know, LinkedIn. It's, it's like I find myself always saying to people, I'm a photographer. It, it's sort of my identity. So when I stopped doing the photography, that was taken away. And 
and and I really collapsed into a very very deep deep depression. And you know, at the lowest point, um, you know, I really didn't know if I wanted to carry on with life, what I wanted to do, and I decided that I wanted a second chance at life, and I wanted to restart my photography. And kind of carrying on from what we were saying earlier, I'd been doing this care work with Nick, and then I decided I was going to take it to another level, which is I'd become a, a living carer for somebody who had multiple sclerosis. And I would live with them for sort of five, six weeks without a day off. I was doing two people's jobs. And then I'd use that money to fund my photography because I also had this idea that if I was going to start doing humanitarian photography, I didn't want to be um, stressed about making money from it. I felt I wanted most importantly to do the stories the way I felt they should be done, not because of what market forces were telling me how it should be done. And so I did that for two, three years where I would do the care work for six weeks, then go off and, and do a story and come back. and and build up my, my work again in that way. And that's how I, again, I guess, battled the depression was by, by becoming so single-minded on that purpose. Um, I didn't see any friends for a couple of years. I didn't hardly saw my family. You know, I just dedicated myself to have that second chance at life and at photography. Um, so that's when I was about 30. Um, and in fact, I say that to any young photographer I meet who you know, has an idea for a project, I'm like, what are you prepared to give up to have that opportunity because you have to make it you know and i literally was quite literally wiping somebody's ass to fund the work that i wanted to do but for me that single-mindedness of saying if i do this for two or three years and i get a second chance at photography doing the work that i want to be done in the way i want to do it would i do it and i was like yes so that was that was kind of the process to get through the depression was to find that that focus i know like sometimes if people go running or people find something that they can really you know, put all their attentions into, and you almost don't care how you feel. You, you, you go through the motions and you just do it every day. So the depression didn't go away with that, but, but I guess was under some kind of control. It obviously then, you know, we're touching it that in, you know, 2011, I was injured working in Afghanistan, you know, sort of what I always call the worst day at the office you could possibly have, um, you know, <laughs> stepped, on, <laughs> stepped on a landmine, lost both my legs and my arm, a year in hospital. And a lot of people said, you know, how, how could you possibly be mentally strong enough to have got through that and to return to work? And actually, what I say is that it was the 10 years before dealing with the depression that gave me the strength to deal with the physical injuries. In, in many ways, the physical injuries were easier. You know, people would say, surely you can't compare like losing your legs and your arm to depression. And I said, you're right, you can't compare it. The depression was harder. And the depression was harder because the physical injuries, people will support you. People will understand. They go like, oh, you know, I can see what, what's wrong. I'll help you with that. Depression, people either don't know how to deal with it or they kind of give you that, oh, come on, cheer yourself up. You know, things could be worse. They, you know, it's very hard to get that support. We also become very insular when we depressed. We feel like, you know, who am I to be complaining about things? You know, I remember feeling so self-indulgent that I'd go and do a story in South Sudan and then come back and feel sorry for myself. But that's depression. It's an illness and people don't see it. So the, the strength that I, gained through the years of, of, of fighting the depression was what gave me the strength to deal with the physical injuries. And I think it's really important people remember that. You know, I, 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 I guess I'm one of the few people that have gone through something, a very, very serious depression and also a very, very serious physical injury. And so, you know, I can, I can sort of sit here on record and say dealing with depression is harder. It's more lonely. It's a, it's a bigger fight and struggle. And so, you know, we need to be more open about talking about mental health and for people to understand it's not a it's not a choice it's not some kind of 
you know, um, lack of moral fiber, all these sort of weird things that get, get said. It's, it's, it's an illness. It's something that is as much of a battle as any kind of physical injury. Absolutely. Very well said. And do you know, I don't even know if you recognize this, but so much of what you were saying about throwing yourself into the work, like, especially in like our modern context, I think it'd be so easy for like someone to hear that and think maybe there was a void you were trying to feel. But arguably that void was the depression that we brought up initially. And what an unbelievable thing that, you know, respectfully, I'm like at a loss for words, like the remedy for that arguably was the aspect of being in service to something different than yourself outside of yourself. And like, how insane is that really that no one could tell you that would um adds like no one could expound on the way that would enrich your life the way it has unless you actually went and did it no and 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 you're right and i think a lot of these things in my life a lot of the the things that i'm able to explain now you know came by fate and, and things happening and then you kind of step back and you go well that's what saved me you know that was the thing but i didn't know it at the time and i think you know the, the care work support work is a really good example because you know, when, when you're very depressed, you, you see no purpose of getting out of bed. You know, it's like you, you lose all self-value um, and you see yourself as worthless. So it's very hard. You know, people would say, oh, give yourself a good positive day or you need to just go out and treat yourself. But if you hate yourself, if you're in such a low point, you don't do that. But what you could see is I knew that on those days where I didn't want to get out of bed, there was somebody dependent on me. That there was somebody out there that needed me to be there for them so that they could at least have a better day. And that kind of pushed me on those days of, of, of feeling, you know, I don't want to be doing anything. No, I have to because there's somebody else depending on me. And for me, at least, that was the, the thing that kind of kickstarted all of this. I love hearing that. And, um, you know, uh, another joy of yours, and we've kind of touched upon this, like in a little sections, is um, cooking. And I love how in the, on the, in the past, in like different interviews and social media, you've talked about how cooking is one of the few things in life that can unify people. And this has come ahead in the form of your show, the, the show you have on Vice, uh, One-Armed Chef. And um, I deeply love the premise behind the show, which showcases you traveling and cooking to better understand various cultures. Um, what would you say has been like the most surprising byproduct of crafting the show? Because obviously, like with a show, there's so much planning that goes into even making it a reality, but then actually executing it is totally different. Yeah, I mean, firstly, getting back to your first point, I realized at one point, um, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm documenting a lot of conflicts in, in, in places where you, even if you're not seeing stuff, all you're hearing is about, you know, man's inhumanity. And I will say man's inhumanity, because, you know, most of the stories I hear of violence are perpetrated by men. And, you know, like in Ukraine at the moment, you know, I hear these terrible stories and, and, and meet people, and, and it's obviously very overwhelming. And then I realized that, that, you know, whenever I met a family, I have a simple rule that I will always try and eat with someone before I photograph them. It's that's a good rule to have. Yeah, you know, because you know when you meet a family in a in a refugee camp or a family that I met yesterday, they've gone through some really difficult times. For me the first thing I want to do is is to build a relationship. So, you know, how how do we do that? We sit down and we eat with people and it's a real sign of respect and I started doing it I just realized how it opened up friendships with people before I became a photographer, you know, before I start taking photographs if we've eaten together, we have a bond. So that's one thing. And, and then I realized that in many ways, you know, when I was sitting down with a family and they're eating, that's when there was laughter, when people were relaxed for a moment. It's like all the problems sort of disappeared just for that moment, at least, when we were sharing a meal. 
And I realized that food is the antithesis. It's the opposite of war. War destroys. It breaks communities apart. It's an expression of hatred. And food brings people together. It's how we build communities. And actually, for me and many people, it's how we express our love. And I realized that food was the balance for me. Um, and so that's why food is so important for me and sharing meals is so important for me because it, it reminds me that there is this opposite to war and that is a shared meal. That is just so beautiful. And like, I highly recommend people check out the show as well because yeah. I, I think tonality, like what really sticks out to me is that there's a lot of humanity and emotion that's conveying, like an earnestness, but there's humor and like, it showcases to me like how um, like interacting with different people doesn't have like a one size fits all. Like there's different shades and like um, tints of color as opposed to just like one color, you know? Well, I think, you know, in, in doing the work that I do covering conflicts and, and very serious humanitarian issues, I, I did a couple of documentaries for, for other channels and, you know, we'd come back and they would do the edit and they would take out all the laughter and they'd take out all the moments of, you know, stupidity even at times and being silly and, and all that because there's this idea that, you know, okay, we're doing a story on, you know, women who have suffered sexual violence in Congo. Obviously, this has to be completely serious. And, but in my mind, I'd be like, but when I was there with them, there was also laughter. There was also jokes being made. And we're cutting that aura out. And maybe it's coming from a sign of respect. We think we have to be very serious about it. But actually, you're disrespecting those people because you're taking away their humanity. And that's what I wanted to do with the series, The One-Armed Chef, was to show that, yes, in these very dark moments, there's these powerful stories. But there's also laughter. There's also life. There's also, you know, this resilience in people. I mean, resilience is an interesting word. I would say that's probably the key thing in my relationship with people. You know, people ask me, do you find you have a better relationship with the people you photograph since your injuries? And I do, but it's not because of my injuries. It's because when I meet people, they will say to me, I can see in your eyes that you have suffered like us. And suffering, the outcome is what I think is resilience. Resilience is life's gift. It's like this gift we're given for really difficult times. You don't make yourself more resilient. I know there's like a million kind of guidebooks to how to be more resilient. I don't think you can make yourself more resilient. I think resilience is life's gift for suffering. And the harder that suffering, the greater your resilience. And what does resilience mean? Well, at one level, it means an ability to cope with difficult times in an easier way. But also, it's the ability to enjoy life more than anyone. And I know that I enjoy life, despite my injuries, more now than I ever have. And the people I meet, but the women in Congo, they also enjoy life in a different way. So we laugh, we joke, you know, we kind of use some homemade alcohol and dance into the night and have a laugh. And I'm like, why are we taking this out of the story? Why are we reducing it to just showing pictures of women suffering? We've taken away their humanity and their dignity in doing that, not the opposite. And so the show was, was to reflect that and to say, you know, these, these are really important and powerful stories that we need to hear, but let's not forget the other side and the other aspects. And like you said, the shades in between of a story. And that for me is, is, is where we find that shared humanity. And then we can really start to create empathy and through that hopefully create real change. You know, what you just said there about resilience and um, coming to a point where you can enjoy life more. I have to say, and I don't even think I can like overstate this, but like how big it, is, it was for me to hear that just now in relation to my own life. Um, like last year, um, in uh, the end of 2021, I, I had like pretty much an engagement breakdown. And 
throughout this year, I've been kind of in a place of rebuilding my life in a headspace of like, oh, I thought I was on this one specific path in terms of like where life was going to go. And now it's going in an opposite way. And it's very destabilizing from like a headspace point of view. But what you said there about coming to a point in life where you can like enjoy it again because of what you went through, it seems obvious, but it's one of those things where it's so important to be reminded of that. So I very much appreciate that because that's, I think I'll definitely take that away, hopefully after this talk. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing as well, you know, touching on what you just said, which is very tied in is, is change. You know, change is if, if you ask anybody, you know, what are the most important moments in your life in terms of self-growth? You know, when are the moments you really kind of felt yourself taking another step? And they will inevitably be tied in with moments of change. So that might be like the first time you leave home. It might be the first time you go to a new town because of university or a new job. It might even be a difficult relationship breakup that's created change. But that would often be the moment when you look back on your life, you go, but that's when I stepped up. That's when I, you know, became the person I am today. For me, you know, being injured in Afghanistan was hugely traumatic change. You know, I went from a very active person to suddenly having to learn to live with a disability. But that change also created the growth in me. The flip side of that is, interestingly, as humans, we also try and avoid change. Yes. And so, you know, we, we actually hate change. We're scared of it. It's terrifying. And we don't like it when it happens. So it's this really interesting sort of antithesis of, in one sense, change is how we grow. But at the same time, we try and avoid it. And we all know that the older we get, the less things we, we allow to change. So I'm trying to, to put in what I call like micro changes into my work. So, for example, you know, every 10 years, which I know is quite a big gap, but I, I change all the cameras that I'm working on. So I've just, you know, I, I was working on a Hasselblad and an old Canon. I've now gone to working on two small contacts cameras and shooting the color again. It's really scary because at first I'm like, you know, I have a familiarity with the way I work. I felt very comfortable with it. Now I'm shooting on these different cameras. I'm like, oh God, what am I doing? But it's great because my creativity is shot up because I'm thinking in a new way. And so that's a small world in, in the world of creativity. I forced a change that has now unsettled me, but I think is, is bringing a greater creativity. So yeah, change, resilience, they're very tied in. Um, they're really difficult things to cope with. But when we step back, we find that we have grown through them. Yeah, I feel like you intrinsically just presented a challenge for me because as you said that, it just hit me that next year will be the 10-year mark of the camera that I got. So <laughs> that's kind of fascinating. <laughs> but it's good. It's, it's like, you know, I got very comfortable with the way I was shooting. I was shooting in black and white, shooting in a certain way. You know, it, it was almost like I, I can guarantee the kind of picture I'm going to get. So suddenly to change, which I did last year when I went back to Afghanistan, I started shooting on this little compact camera, shooting in color. It was really like unsettling because I didn't have that security of thinking I know what it's going to look like. It's, it's going to be exactly that way. But it, it's definitely brought out, you know, an enthusiasm. I'm going back through photo books again, looking at new ideas because I'm out of that comfort zone. Yeah, I have a couple more questions for you. And like this next one is one that I was very keen to talk to you about. And there's actually a funny story um, that happened a few days ago. I was talking to a friend about people I'd be talking to this season and you came up and um, to kind of like showcase just um, how impactful your work is. I was showing them like the celebrity work you had done years back. And then I showed them like your more recent photos and uh, uh, the and the, like I did it for like... Um, the reaction they had the reaction like this is the same guy like what the hell but the photos that i showed them was of uh from gq hype and 
it was so important for me to bring these photos up because I genuinely feel this way. I think in the future, when we look back on the pandemic, I strongly believe those photos you did in GQ hype, especially that cover, are going to be things that will that will stand out and stand the test of time. And they're photos that you took of um, the NHS and their emergency wards, essentially showcasing the severity of what was going on throughout the COVID pandemic. And I don't think it's I don't think it's an overstatement to say that the power of those images, it's conveyed, like your experience in war photography is conveyed within those photos. And I think that was probably the aim in a way. But um, I wonder, what was it like for you to actually take those photos in terms of your headspace in real time? Like, can you recall what that was like? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it, again, you know, it's great how this conversation things sort of tie back. You know, we're talking about ego and why we make photographs. and. Essentially, you know, obviously, like everybody else, COVID hit. Suddenly, I'm I'm stuck at home. I'd actually gone through a bit of a weird running up to that period. I I kind of was almost obsessively working. I I think I've been in 19 countries in the 12 months before. I had malaria. I had a burst appendix, and I still wasn't taking time off. I was just like work, work, work. And suddenly, you know, COVID hit. I'm sitting at home thinking, you know, this is actually going to be good for me to take a bit of time, consider everything, and consider what I want to do with photography. And then I got a phone call, and the phone call was actually from a guy called Sheehan Hetherachi, who was the surgeon that had done a lot of the operations on me. And he said, look, you know, we're here. The crisis just started. We feel, as in the NHS staff, the doctors, the nurses, all the teams there, that this needs to be documented, that this is a historic moment in the history of the NHS, of, of the medical professions. Um, but what was going on at that time was a lot of politics about allowing photographers in. You know, should we, there be photographers? There was obviously all these problems of, of there not being enough PPE equipment, of, of shortages, all these different things. So the, the, the kind of the government side of things, the political side was, was trying to stop any photographers going in and documenting it. So I came up with a kind of solution where I said to the, the political side of the hospital, I said, look, let's make a deal. I'll come in, I'll make the photographs. I'll work with the NHS staff. They're the ones that have asked me to be there. I'm not there as a journalist. I'm simply creating a historical record for what you are doing. We'll keep the pictures. Then at a later stage, we can sit down and you can decide if you're happy for these to be released or not. But at least we'll have them on record. Even if they sit in a vault for now, they will be there as a record of what's happening right now. So that was the agreement, was that I went there to make the photographs, not knowing whether they'd ever be seen. But I knew it was going to be important just to have that as, as a record of what was going on. And the, trust me, the politics were really difficult. There was a lot of times when, you know, I was told I couldn't be there anymore. I had to stop. But every time it was the, the, the medical staff themselves saying, you know, we feel this is important. At that stage, nobody even knew, you know, what the trajectory was going to be, what was going to happen next. But it really was to go there and create a document. So, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for what you said, because that was, that was really my purpose, was to go there and create the set of photographs that would be kept on record, that would be there, you know, at some point in, in the future to look back and say, this is, this is what was there. For me, on a personal level, it was very strange, because I was going back to some of the intensive care units where I'd been a patient. You know, I'd, I'd gone through 46 days on a life support, um, you know, where I, where I barely survived. I have very difficult memories of that. And so to walk back into those wards and hear the same noises and the machines and to see people, you know, my, my condition was because my lungs were, were, were damaged. So they were um, basically filled up with liquid, which is exactly what was happening with those COVID patients. But at the same time, what it, what it meant is that probably, again, I had an insight that other people didn't have. And I remember... You know, how even in this kind of in and out of consciousness, how 
the nurses are incredible, um, or all the medical staff are, but how, you know, if they're taking your blood or vital signs, even if you are unconscious, they will still stroke your hand, they will still talk to you. They do all these things that are, are such beautiful, compassionate moments. And even under all the stress they were under and the nerves, you know, it was a terrible time, they were still taking that time. So a lot of the photographs were about those little moments of intimacy, those little touches that I know as a patient was so important for me um, and that I was able to, to yeah, share that. Wow. And I, I really want to highlight this. Um, as you were talking, this pinged into my head, like for people who are listening, who don't know much about photographers and the photo world and like how all of this kind of tends to work. It's very important to point out that what you just said in regards to the conversation you had on the political side is very unorthodox in the sense that respectfully, most photographers wouldn't want to do that or allow themselves to have the the willingness to separate their ego from the task at hand. So that's something worth noting as well. Well, as I say, it was just for me, it was about like this this should be documented. And, you know, I wasn't being paid to do it. Um, you know, I was just in there to do it. And and you know, in the end. They agreed that, that some of the photographs could be released and they were that the, the GQ article that you saw and I was able to write. But um, but as I generally it was it was there to be, you know, a purpose. And that, and that was it. I mean, it came, it came with its own challenges. That was uh, at a time, as I say, when PPE was just still in shortage. And you sort of turn up there and there'd be like a box of stuff and, you know, you'd be trying to scramble and put it all on. And, and you'd have to go through into the intensive care wards and put everything on yourself. And as a one arm guy trying to put on all this PPE. And, and take photographs and it was it was a challenge but I felt in, in many ways I was giving back to the healthcare professionals that had saved my life um that had been there for me and it was an opportunity for me to using my my work to to pay them back in some small way yeah and the photos are incredible like I mean I I know I could compliment you all day on your work but like the way yeah. you you approached it is that there's like it, it astounds me from like a visual element that you're able to have this contrast of elegance in the context of how these NHS, NHS workers um, function in terms of being skilled and talented, while also being able to depict the horror of like what was going on. But all of it felt tasteful, like none of it felt exploitative at all. I think that's the thing where like a lesser photographer from like um, uh, experience perspective could have like arguably made work that would have been felt exploitative without even, you know, intending to do so. But I just love the way you approached it. You know, I think for me, it's one of the lessons that I, I've learned as I've carried on this journey as a photographer is what is important to me. And, and you know, when I started, I think, especially in the documentary world, you know, I, I wanted the dramatic. I thought that's what's going to be of interest. And, and actually, as the time's gone on, I've ended up focusing more on the kind of banality of life in some ways, which is those little intimate moments. and you know, that can be a family sitting in a, in a tent where the grandmother's brushing a granddaughter's hair or it could be a, a mud hut in South Sudan where it's a father on the floor doing lessons with his kids or you know, a mother feeding her baby in a, in a flat in East London. Those things are all the same. And those are the things that I focus on. And, and it was the same during the COVID wards that, yes, there were some horrific things happening. You know, it was, it was a lot of people dying, a lot of really horrific things to see. But, but what I was really touched by was this intimacy and so for me, the favorite photographs still are those little moments of intimacy between a patient and a nurse or a doctor. And, and, and that's, that was, yeah, what I still choose to focus on. Uh, before we wrap, I wanted to harken back to earlier in the talk where we chatted about uh, the importance of intention. And I feel like 
arguably the most intentional thing you've done with your life has been founding the Legacy of War Foundation, where you also serve as the CEO. Um, when I learned about the work of the foundation and I started following the newsletter, I think the biggest shock I had was realizing that there aren't many charities of this sort that primarily focus on people with disabilities who are displaced due to conflict. Like, there was definitely like, um, just like a space for legacy of war to exist. And, you know, part of you being in the Ukraine due to the conflict, and I bring all this up to ask, like, how life-changing has it been for you to have this foundation where you can operate with, like, intention in a very fierce and pointed way like we we're talking about time earlier pre-pandemic about how you were overworking yourself and having this now shows that you have a very clear indication of how your time is being utilized that's a very it's a very rare place to be in life you know it's it's the 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 foundation is is something i never really imagined doing um you know i've never had a job in my life you know i've always worked for myself in one way or another and so, you know, setting up an organization was quite funny the first few years because as the team started to grow, because at the beginning, the foundation was just me running everything. And then, you know, we, the team's grown now and we have sort of seven or eight people working there. And, you know, it'd be things like they'd be like, oh, we need a shared diary. I'd be like, why? Why, why do you want to know what I'm doing? You know, so like, <laughs> I spent 30 years doing everything on my own. We're like, why, why, why do you need to share a diary? Why would I do that? Um, and I remember we did an interview for somebody um, and I, I turned to my, my my colleague and I said, you know, it's really weird for me because I've never been into an interview. I've never done a job interview and here I am giving one. So, but at the same time, everything I wanted to do with the charity was about doing things in a different way. And the project I, I will use as an example um, is called Land for Women in, in Rwanda. And this for me sums up why we exist because I wanted to challenge the notions of what NGO work and charity work are. There is still a terrible power dynamic, which is, you know, the person, generally a man in the West, overseeing his idea of, of what benevolence is and, you know, words like we empower women, you know, all these kind of like horrible phrases that I don't like. You know, we give voice to people. And I wanted to backtrack and say, how can we do things differently? So Land for Women is this amazing project where we set up cooperative farms in Rwanda. That's been done before. What we did differently is we bought the land and then returned it to the women. So they were the landowners. Now, immediately, they have the power now. They can choose to work with us as a foundation, but they are landowners. And that's life-changing for them. And as I say, they have the power now. They could just walk away and say, you know what, we want nothing to do with you anymore. But we have a five-year program, which is education, everything from banking to sustainable farming, which we ask them to do with us. but they have the land. I don't believe you can empower someone else, but I believe, for example, with the land for women, that we can take down the barriers that are stopping those women empowering themselves. And by that, it's land ownership and education. And that's what we're providing. But this is about changing the power dynamic. And also I'm able to do things like, I'm not allowed to take photographs for the foundation. So we've just um, employed an amazing Rwandan photographer called Alice, who's gonna document the project. So I'm also able to give opportunities to local photographers, you know, all the things that I've seen and had problems with in other organizations, I'm able to, in some small way, correct and see a new, fresh way of doing things. So all our projects are localized. They're led by local teams. They're beneficiary-led. The power is in the hands of the beneficiaries, and we're there to work with them. All the storytelling is done by, by local photographers, all these different things. So it's, for me, it's a privilege to be part of it and be on this team 
Wow. I, I didn't know that was an element as well. Like the fact that you're not allowed to take photos for the photo that yeah. I mean, God, let's talk about the ultimate this whole talk I think what conveys is like uh it sounds like in the course of your life, especially these last few years, you've gone through like quite a glorious ego death, respectfully. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's like photography. I think the foremost of it is actually I love photography. And you know, I always say to people that there's that you get a lot of pushback. And I, I've made comments about like, you know, wanting to work with local photographers. And people have said to me, oh, you're trying to put us all out of work. I was like, what? No, I, I, it's, it's like this. It's not this hostility. It's not saying a white man can't go and do that story. No, they should, because it gives a different perspective. The point is, we've had this very simple perspective on so many stories around the world. My feeling is the greater the diversity behind the camera, the wider vision we all have. As simple as that well that's the most beautiful note to end on guys thank you so much for this i've been again i was very much looking forward to this for a long time and i really do appreciate your time truly no no oh thank you i've really enjoyed the conversation and so it was nice to to step back from the work that i'm doing here and, and just kind of talk about photography because as i say at the core of it all i love photography i love storytelling and you know the greatest gift i ever had was a, was a camera at 18 because it opened up the world to me it's been a passport into other people's lives and it's given me so much. It's given me so much. It's given me who I am. So yeah, I'm just I have to share these stories. Thank you so much for checking this out. Be sure to subscribe to the new exchange via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you stream podcasts. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.